Hi, this is Brother Sam, and we're back again with the next chapter of our Men of God series. This one is called A Man's Battle. So if you have something you need to figure out, some problem that you need to solve, what's your first go-to? Do you ask someone, or do you start searching online? I know for me, I just, I just look for a video or some do-it-yourself explanation. We get in that habit. Why? Because we don't want to go to somebody and actually admit we need real help, especially if it's a tough issue. Today we're going to be talking about a tough issue, pornography, masturbation. This is a threshold moment in any men's group when you actually start to talk about your struggles. So, yeah, if you want to keep doing it on your own, if you want to keep relying on yourself, you know how that works or doesn't work. So let's be real with each other today. I get it. You might not be struggling with pornography or masturbation. You might have some other unwanted sin that is your current battleground. Either way, this is an opportunity to open up, to talk with other men, and to get their help and support as brothers in Christ. Let's get started. Chapter 3. A Man's Battle Porn Again Jim leaves the party and heads for home, hands shoved deep into his pockets, a dark storm cloud of disappointment brewing in his head. Sarah was there tonight, but he blew his chance to talk to her. Seemed like she was having lots of fun talking with other guys, but when Jim tried to start up a conversation, he just fumbled with his words and walked away pissed off with himself. So he makes up his mind about what he's going to do when he gets home. As usual, He'll go to his room, open his laptop, and start the familiar ritual. He'll roll through his preferred porn sites and then masturbate. It's not even midnight, so he knows he'll probably be doing this, on and off, for the next several hours. Jim is a fictional character, but his experience is true enough. Loneliness and relational disconnection often go hand-in-hand hand with porn use. Why is that? Isn't porn even more lonely? More disconnected from real relationships? There's something else going on here. We're looking for something when we look at porn. What is it? Picture this. As men, we find pictures especially powerful. Rather than denying this, can we do the opposite? Can we take a closer look? Nothing else seems to be working. Let's give it a shot. Consider the images a man sees when he looks at porn. Who are these women? Choose just one. In your mind's eye, imagine looking at her face to face. Whose daughter do you suppose she is? Does she have any brothers and sisters? What kind of food does she like? What's her favorite way to de-stress? Working out? Listening to music? What kinds? Cool. By the way, does this feel weird, thinking of a woman in a porn image this way? Stay with me. Is she empowered by working in porn? Or rather, is she exploited, used, and abused? Face it, her appeal is based on looks, and since these images are devoured at warp speed, her value is passing. Very few women and men can work long in the porn industry, and most are not reaping any reward from the staggering wealth it generates for its producers. She is consumed as a product, 
with no concern for her well-being. As part of the global sex trade, the leading abuser of women in the world today. Consider the images that we respond to, that we prefer. What do these show us about the ways we see women, the ways we see ourselves in relationship to women or with other men? Think about the way training works, any kind of training. How repetition, combined with endorphin release, burns a hole in your brain like dynamite blasting a roadway through a mountain. That hole becomes a passage, and you'll always know how and where to find your way there and back again. Only with porn, there's no back again. Every time through that hole makes it harder and harder to see a woman as anything other than a tool or a toy, an instrument for satisfying your lust. Now, picture another woman's face. Fast forward to three years into your marriage, that happy marriage you hope for. She, your future wife, doesn't want to have sex with you anymore. Why? She knows there's something going on when you're in bed with her. Your head is somewhere else. And your desire for sex is not about her, not about who she is and how much you cherish everything about her. It's more like she's just a means to an end, a way of feeding a hunger, a hunger that is never satisfied. She doesn't need to see you scrolling through porn to feel its dehumanizing effects. She's smart enough and sensitive enough to read it in the countless small words, gestures, and attitudes that paint the picture. Yep, that's the way porn plays out on the other side of marriage. If you train your mind by blasting holes through the mountain of neural pathways, if you burn that into your brain, you'll always drag the toxic waste of the sex industry back into your own bed, into the most intimate spaces you share with the person you'll want to love best. That's porn's lasting imprint, a warped image of woman. Think of this the next time that familiar rationalization pops into your head, but it doesn't hurt anybody. The Knight, the Saint, and the Dragon There's a story of a saint that paints a different picture altogether. It's a myth, or at least it seems so, but he's one of the most popular saints in antiquity. St. George is often depicted as a knight slaying a dragon and saving a princess. His legend is located somewhere in the 4th century, popularized in the Middle Ages, as a warrior arriving in the nick of time to rescue the daughter of a Libyan king. Here's the Sparknotes version. The people of Silene were picking victims by lottery to feed a hungry dragon who terrorized the town. When the lot fell to the princess, she was left on the banks of a swamp to await certain doom. That's when St. George comes clopping into the scene and, there are different versions, promptly rears his horse, spears the beast, and frees the woman. We can laugh at the fairy tale triteness of the legend and the fact that he's still considered a saint, though he was downgraded by the church's calendar because, yeah, the story is pretty unbelievable, is surprising. Here's my point. Despite the strangeness of the story, it's still enduringly popular. St. George is the patron saint of England, Ethiopia, Georgia, the country, not the state, and parts of Spain and Portugal. Why is he so compelling? Before you think we're championing an image of men rescuing helpless damsels, that's not where this is going. What we're looking at is not the woman, but the dragon. I believe men see in this story, and especially in the knight's battle with the beast, 
an allegory of something more timeless and much more personal. That dragon is lust, the lust that lives in each of us as men. That lust is the lingering result of the serpent's deception and humanity's rebellion back in the beginning. The dragon comes to devour our capacity as men to love in a self-sacrificial, disinterested way. Disinterested. It's a weird church word. It means no agenda, no self-gratifying ulterior motive. What captures a man's imagination in the story is the ending. Not so much what happens as what doesn't happen. That's the part where St. George could claim the maiden's hand in marriage from her father. Where the hell was he when the dragon showed up? St. George doesn't, at least not in the version known as the Golden Legend. Here's my take. It's not a rejection of woman. It's a rejection of a shallow, self-centered view of woman. Women don't need saving from men. Jesus did that already, for them and for us. What women need from us is help, the kind of help we'd call co-partnership. In a world that places a woman's value in body types, appearances, and an impossible list of ideals, she needs to know I value her as a person. To treat a woman according to her inherent dignity as a daughter of God, that's not only freeing for her, it also kicks some serious dragon ass in my own heart. Short answer to the question forming in the back of our brains, yes, it can be done. Beyond Shame If anything above, the part about porn, speaks to your own experience, it's easy to take the off-ramp into self-condemnation at this point and say, well, what else would you expect? I'm a bad, worthless person who can't stop looking at porn. If this is you, I have a surprising message and a ray of hope, a way out of this humiliating cycle. Here's the shocker. That shame isn't helping you. That shame itself is the greatest obstacle to freedom for you and me. See if you follow me here. We need to adjust the picture. It starts with a positive vision of masculine sexuality. A few definitions first. Speaking most broadly, sexuality is the human person's way of being, respectively, male and female. It includes the distinctive manner in which we embody and express masculinity or femininity in our lives. Sexuality is oriented towards life and in a Christian understanding characterized by generous self-gift. That can all seem rather subdued until a man awakens to the gift and the adventure that is masculinity. Here's the real problem to solve. We think too small. The gift is immense. A man's sexuality is about so much more than the physical act. It's about the distinctive, powerful ways we love as men. By it, a man pours himself out by pouring himself into some great vision, some compelling call, loving the persons entrusted to him as he answers that call. Sexuality is our mode of self-gift, characterized by radical, all-out dedication. It encompasses the whole man, not just this or that part of his body. Sure, sexuality is present everywhere in nature, birds, bees, etc., but in a human context, it is exponentially greater. Since it is interpersonal, life-giving, and generational, human sexuality doesn't just make babies, it makes civilizations. As men, we have a unique and irreplaceable role to play in this. Does this seem overblown? I'll give an example. 
Last chapter, we looked at every man's internal vocation to be a father in the image of the father. Consider Abraham. When we first meet him, he's already a very old man. He's the other Adam in the book of Genesis, the man God turns to in an effort to reestablish the image of fatherhood distorted by the first Adam's sinful legacy. Abraham's faith is so great that his name is changed by God from Abram to Abraham. The first name means father of a nation, but the second means father of an army of nations. Today he is the recognized patriarch not only of the Jews, but of Christians and Muslims as well. Get this, he only had two sons. Through them, Abraham has become the father of a majority of the world's population. All this because he believed, because he dedicated himself completely to God's vision for his life, for his fatherhood. The enemy wants to take the immensity of this gift, the great power of masculine sexuality, and make it very, very small. He wants to take our ways of loving as men and turn us inward, absorbed in self-gratification. He doesn't care how he does it as long as he does it. If he can make you small by locking you into the hamster wheel of sexual sin, he'll do it that way. If he can imprison you with shame, that's even better, especially if he can implant lies deep within your heart that say, I'm a bad, worthless person. What man aspires to greatness when he believes this about himself? The dragon must die. Back to that dragon called lust. He isn't tame. He's not your friend. He wants to burn through your time, your money, your motivation, and your reputation. He's voracious, and he wants to hurt someone very special to you, someone you haven't met yet. She's the third woman in our series of mental pictures. She's your future daughter. Last chapter, we learned that every man can leave a legacy through a father's blessing, a father's commission, and a father's mercy. Mainly, we spoke about sons, but now we come to the blessing a father gives his daughters. It's true that not every man will be privileged to raise a daughter, but as we've said, every man is a father. That legacy, you know this now, is already being built. Picture her. Maybe she's your daughter by birth or by adoption. She might be your niece or maybe a young woman who respects you as a mentor, someone you're teaching or supervising at work. How will you look at her? She'll know. She'll understand herself based on the way the important men in her life, those she trusts, see her. She'll either understand herself to be deserving of love or lust, depending on how they treat her. If she's your own daughter, growing up at home, she'll need you most when she's emerging as a woman, right when her body takes on the shape and contours of the very women you're training yourself to see as objects. How will you look at her then? How will she see herself in your eyes? Think about that. Maybe you'll realize on that day, the day she's becoming fully, beautifully a woman, that you've made a terrible mistake. You'll see where your mind goes because of all those years feeding the dragon. What will you do? Pull back from her? Avoid her hugs and her need for a physical affection that is genuine and pure? She'll notice that if you're suddenly distant. She won't blame you, though. She'll most likely blame herself. She'll assume there's something wrong with her and bring that belief into her relationships with the guys she knows at school. Guys on the hunt for vulnerable girls. By the time this plays out in your own family, it'll be too late. 
The decision to see your daughter as a woman worthy of pure love will have already been made one way or the other. Brothers, we make that decision today. Suddenly, that St. George story isn't so trite. Suddenly, a man realizes what's at stake. He decides it's time to fight. This dragon must die. Making a Battle Plan At the time of the original crusade in 1099, when the very first army arrived in Jerusalem, they didn't want to wait for the rest of their brothers in arms. They launched an attack on the massive walls of the city, trusting that God would deliver the infidels into our hands. Problem was, they only had one siege ladder. No matter. The whole army rushed to the foot of the wall and began their ascent, weapons at the ready. When the first knight reached the top of the wall, something unexpected happened. He met a guard who cut off his hand. With no means of climbing up or down, the knight was frozen in place with the rest of the army stuck on the ladder or waiting below, sitting ducks for the archers on the wall. The ending wasn't pretty. It's easy as men to get fired up for a hard fight. It's much harder to wait and do the strategic planning and training necessary to win that fight, to ask key questions like, do I have the right alliances, the right weapons, and the right plan? The Right Alliances Finding the right allies begins by asking myself, what relationships are really helping me live in freedom as a man? Which people and groups are helping you to see that freedom isn't free, that it's a daily decision to live in the truth and resist selfishness? Two alliances are essential, Jesus first, and then the brothers in your community of faith. Jesus is many things, Lord and Savior, Son of God, King of Kings, but here's one we can easily miss. He's a man, and as such, he gets it. He knows in a uniquely personal way our struggles. Don't imagine him as some remote image of perfect, unattainable manhood. He became, quote, sin who knew no sin, unquote, so that he could be right here in the trenches with us as we prepare for battle. We are certainly not passive in the salvation he brings, but rather by grace he gives us restored vision, desire, and efficacy for the fight, quote, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, unquote. Brothers, this is true. Don't let the promises of God get blocked by your own mental firewall. They have the power to set you free. If Jesus is our first ally, a close second is his body, the church, embodied in our brothers. I feel like this is obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Our sisters can't fulfill this role. It would be unfair for us to expect it from them. Only a man can call a man to be a man, to embrace his internal vocation of fatherhood. Recall the two necessary pillars our brothers provide as we build our legacy, the summons and the sacrifice. The summons calls us out of our rut, our resignation, our mental surrender to sexual sin. We commit to our brothers and they commit to us saying, you're better than this made for more, and I will fight for you if you'll do your part. The sacrifice means that we claim a shared vision and mission for sexual purity, no matter how long this takes. The goal is not perfection, as in never sin again, but perseverance, as in never say die. As long as we don't give up, we cannot lose this fight. The Right Weapons This is the practical part, but I'll start with a disclaimer. There is no trick to this fight. 
We'd love to find some kind of hack, some YouTube video that shows us how we can kill the dragon of lust in our lives. What we need is not more gimmicks, but a set of weapons that are proven and effective in waging this war. There are four weapons, four repetitive exercises that establish new neural pathways. We want to blast new roadways in our mental landscape. These are prayer, accountability, reconciliation, and training in truth. Here's an acronym to help remember, Jesus saves me, but I need to do my part. Prayer. This is a particular kind of prayer we say when we face that moment of decision, like in the story at the start of this chapter. Remember how Jem decided to use porn as he was walking home. The saints teach us that sin is most easily resisted in its beginnings. In that moment of decision, we learn to direct our prayer to Jesus and ask for his help. A traditional prayer that's easy to memorize is, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Say it with me. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can repeat this over and over in your mind when you start to feel the tug of temptation. At first, it may only slow down a bad decision, but with time, your will is strengthened and you'll be able to say a firm and effective no. Accountability. Are we willing to bring our struggles here to this group of men? Nobody can force us to do this, but freedom won't be won on our own. When we trust our brothers and open up about porn and masturbation, we blow up that shame our enemy uses to lock us in and limit the gift of our sexuality. Not every man's battle is porn. There are other kinds of shame we deal with. But the point is we all need a brotherhood if we're going to win the battle. One simple way to begin, say the word masturbation in your group if that is in fact where you struggle. If the battle is someplace else, say that. As soon as you name the sin, you begin in Christ to take power over it. Reconciliation If you've been in men's group for more than a year, you've already learned about the power of confession, how it's done, what to say. Rather than review it here, we want to renew our commitment. This battle is a siege, not a skirmish. Recommitting to confession is about embracing long-haul thinking. There are no silver bullets. It's not like you go regularly for a year or two and you're free and clear from lust. The saints warn us that sin and temptation follow no predictable patterns. Some struggle now, but with effort get free. Others don't struggle until later in life. Still others face a constant daily battle that remains with them throughout their lives. Whatever the pattern our thinking is key, I will fight this sin for as long as it takes. The sacrament of reconciliation is essential for that fight. If you need a refresher on how it's done, see the appendix in the back of the Men of God booklet. Training in Truth Scripture is a critical part of rerouting our mental pathways. Daily meditation on God's Word combined with memorizing a few key passages. Again, keep it doable and you'll do it more dependably. Pick three passages and commit them to memory. These are mine. Before temptation, Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, saving all and training us to reject godless ways and worldly desires and to live temperately, justly, and devoutly in this age. During temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No trial has come to you but what is human. God is faithful and will not let you be tried beyond your strength, but with the trial he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. After committing sin, 
Micah 7, 8. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will arise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord is my light. The Right Plan Though there are many battle plans possible, here we offer two strategic elements necessary for any successful plan, self-knowledge and vision. One is an honest grasp of where you are. The other is a compelling map of where you want to be. What do we mean by self-knowledge? Here's one place to start. Early on in this chapter, we asked a question, what are we looking for when we look at porn? If everything we set in between leaves you more informed, but still resigned to the rut you're in, we should continue our pattern from before. Rather than look away, look closer, look deeper. In that moment of sexual release, isn't there something deeper going on? A desire for comfort, for control, for a certain kind of power. What images provide the strongest emotional response? Don't worry, you don't need to talk about it in the group. The point is to consider what the things we look at tell us about ourselves and our own relationships. Family patterns, childhood experiences, and personal traumas all play their part in habitual sin. Much of this we learn as we go about our lives. Much is healed through prayer and receiving the sacraments. Sometimes, however, we need particular help to see it. If this has been your experience, consider a recommendation. You might benefit from seeing a counselor. Many men will resist. Speaking for myself, there was a time when I'd turn to almost anything else. Technology, internet filters, self-help videos, and TED Talks, whatever. Not counseling. That's for people who have major issues, not me. Here's the thing. Going to a counselor is like going to the doctor. The latter heals bodies, the former heals relationships. And there's no magic to it. A counselor provides professional insight that informs your life experience and fills out the picture. He or she helps answer the question, why do I do what I do? For myself, I've learned that counseling serves and strengthens self-knowledge. As long as you find a trustworthy counselor who supports your Catholic belief, you'll come out ahead. Don't close your mind to it. Pray and ask God if this might be the right move for you. Talk to your pastoral leader about it if that helps. One more note, if you decide to wait for a more convenient time, be advised there probably is not a more convenient time than now. Beyond self-knowledge, the greatest weapon we wield in this battle is vision. Go back to St. George the Knight. What inspires us about that story? I think it's nobility. Here's one way to see it. When we say Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, do we ever think what kings, what lords that's referring to? Have you ever thought it refers to you and to me? We are lords in his kingdom, noblemen in his house, brothers. Think about that. A man needs a vision for his life. This includes a vision for his sexuality that is noble, dedicated to something bigger than this or that problem or project. He won't find it in a woman, though he may be called to join with her and she with him in attaining this vision. It has to be something that energizes him, engages all his abilities, and sustains him to the end. Each of us are called as men to live this nobility, to leave behind the particular legacy God has in mind for our lives. Only this will endure after the siege ends, once peace reigns at last. This is my prayer for you, to look back one day on a worthy legacy. 
It is a man's consummate joy, a satisfaction like no other. The Bible captures something of this in the simple language of a blessing. May you see your children's children in a happy Jerusalem. So be it.